0: Start again. Start again. Begin. Start again. Everyone. The truth is, if you feel called to this work and you see people sitting on a bridge with nothing, with no shelter, with no water, with no food, you have to do something. goodbye to our old life. It's a brand new world, a new beginning. If I don't have this work or some work where I can actually see the whole point of the Bible and the gospel and all those things, if there's not something tangible, then I might as well not go. My friend, begin, Don't forget
1: one Hey everybody this is Rod Hayden
2: and I'm Flora
1: and you're listening to Caterpillar Goo.
2: Yay, it's been a while. It
1: has been a while. Today we're talking to Andrea Rudnick. She's in Brownsville and she's part of an organization called Team Brownsville. That services a couple of different immigrant populations you're an immigrant what was that like
2: (laughs) put me on the spot let me represent all my kind (laughs) I watched Hamilton recently and they said immigrants get the job done
1: (laughs) team Brownsville serves two different immigrant populations One is asylum seekers who are trying to get to the border to legally request asylum in the United States. They're fleeing all kinds of terrible conditions in a whole bunch of different countries. They're not all coming from Mexico or Central America or South America, like I think the perception is at the Southern border. And the other population are people that have been released from detention centers and they're just uh, sent to bus stops in the Brownsville area. and. You know, it's more or less good luck to you. So she helps get them food and water and cell phones to contact the people that they're going to and that kind of thing. So the, the, the asylum seekers that she's serving, the United States has changed its policy. She talks a little bit about the Migrant Protection Program and how part of that is preventing asylum seekers to get to the border, because if they can get to the border checkpoint, then they are legally allowed to request asylum. So a way to prevent that is to stop them from getting to the border in the first place. So now they're kind of in a limbo on the Mexican side in Matamoros, waiting for their opportunity for the U.S. government to let them approach the, the border checkpoint.
2: During this pandemic and all the things that are happening in the world right now, I think about heroes. So what, what is your definition of a hero?
1: Well, I think Andrea is definitely my definition of a hero. That's what I found fascinating about her. And I hope to do in my next series of interviews, I hope to do more with people that do what she did, which is she saw a need that wasn't being filled and stepped in to fill it. And I think that's amazing to the people that don't let themselves be stopped by the idea of who am I? I'm just one person or I'm just, I'm just a retiree from the Brownsville school district. What can I do? She just did it. And she didn't spend a lot of time going, this is too big. I can't do it. She just did it and then learned how big it was and how hard it was as she went, which is pretty amazing. And I hope to find more stories like that.
2: It is amazing.
1: Here's Andrea Rudnick from Team Brownsville.
0: Transformation, transformation comes slowly. You can't really seek transformation. It comes to you. It comes to you because of what you do, because of the ways that you put yourself out there. I could say that all of us that have started with Team Brownsville, that we've all been transformed in ways that we never would have expected that our eyes have been opened to things that we just never knew about. I don't know, your your priorities change, I think, when that transformation happens. We started in in July of 2018 and, you know, we've gone through a lot of changes, um, certainly. More changes than we ever would have known about. We continue just by trying to meet whatever the needs are that day. Because if we had known what we were going to be doing for two years, we might have said, "No, nah, we can't really do that. That's just too much." But this way, just just uh, one day at a time. Let's see what today brings. Okay, what what are the needs today? What needs uh, can we meet? That's really how we continue. That's just every single day you would think it would give you people like more compassion uh, more understanding of, of that situation that the crisis was here it wasn't somewhere else and so it, it was a lot harder to throw up your hands and say well I can't do anything because yeah the people like right in front of you there are people here that ignore that and go on with their business as though there are no There are no people sitting in an encampment in Matamoros. I guess, I guess my biggest surprise has been that aside from Team Brownsville and a few more people, there's a lot of people that kind of choose to ignore the whole thing. I think each of us has slightly different creation stories of how Team Brownsville was formed. And the truth is we came to the same work in different ways. We came in just as teachers and administrators from the school district here in Brownsville. Um, the skills that we bring in are skills that we've had from being teachers and administrators and um, you know, working with kids with special needs, uh, working in a, in a community that's a high poverty community, a community where you do have a lot of kids that are undocumented, kids that are uh, families that struggle a great deal. Um, so I think we just, we came in with that more than anything, just that, that background of these are our people, they're not different from the people that we've been working with all along. For me, what, what inspired me was going to the big march, the, the march against family separation. And, you know, just, I knew about it, I knew what was happening, and then I went to that, that march, and you know, it, it was a really big march for Brownsville. So I would say that was just a catalyst, and then, and then the next thing that happened for me personally is one of the organizers, one of the people that works for the ACLU, his name is Mike Seifert. He sent out a, a message saying, please do what you can, because we have people that are sitting on the bridge with nothing. The truth is, if you feel called to this work, and you see people sitting on a bridge with nothing, with no shelter, with no water, with no food, you have to do something. You can't just ignore it, or at least I can't. And I think that the people who, who eventually came to be Team Brownsville couldn't ignore it either. We started with five or six people, and pretty quickly we got up to maybe 10 or so. We kind of had to come up with how were we gonna do that work. And we did have good models to go by because there are other organizations that have been doing the work, especially in the bus stations. Like there's an organization in San Antonio, and I'm sure there's one in, in Austin as well that meet and greet people at the bus stations So this would be the starting place because we have three detention centers um, in the area of Brownsville. They would bring um, people that were released from the detention center to our bus station. I mean, we were getting people from here to wherever. And we just had this network of people that would meet and greet at bus stations all over the country. They uh, The numbers have gone up and down. Um, Right now, because of COVID, I think that they're releasing more people because they have had many COVID cases in the detention centers. And so there's been a big outcry to release people. And we talked to a lot of people and horrific stories and the stories affect you. Um, You realize that there's so much you can't do. And... I don't know. For me, that, that's just my drive is just to keep doing what I can do. But just knowing that I can't do everything and I can't meet every need and I can't, there's many things that are, that go on in the encampment that we have no, no control over. There's cartel activity everywhere in Mexico and that doesn't exclude the encampment. Those are all things that we don't have control over. I really don't know how these families got here but but they're getting here in a really bad time but it was really metering that set these people on the bridge because that stopped them from crossing into the united states to request asylum
1: and that population that you're serving isn't illegal anyway right they're following the legal procedure for seeking asylum right
0: they are and a lot of people don't understand that but that's also the rhetoric that that comes through uh, from the current administration that these are illegals, they're coming, you know, for the wrong reasons. It, It presents these people in the worst possible light, hence the migrant protection protocol. It's not protecting the migrants at all. It's protecting the American people against the migrants. Look it up. I think it's on the uh, Department of uh, Homeland Security uh, webpage. Is where they have like a write-up about what MPP is, and you'll see, you'll be shocked. <laughs> I was, because the rules say that if you can, if you're on U.S. territory, you can request asylum. But if you put the checkpoint at the right, at the midpoint, you know, kind of straddling the line and you don't allow these people to cross the line, well then, I guess it's fair game. But it was making sure that asylum seekers did not get through to, to request asylum. As long as they keep them back in Mexico, you know, they haven't requested asylum yet. So we never had people sitting on the bridge like that waiting to, to request asylum. Um, they, were, they had always been able to cross freely. And so it was kind of like, go back and take a number and then very very slow crossing of people to request asylum like where before you they would arrive and they would cross
1: now they would arrive
0: and there might be 50 people ahead of them and they were crossing people you know they might cross two men one day then they might wait a few days and then they might cross a family and then a couple of more days would pass and then they cross a few more you know it was never very many and so just had this effect of more and more people arriving and not being able to get across and so just kind of building up and building up the encampment and it's frustrating and infuriating to to think about you know you're serving these people that have been through so much and our own government refuses to let them in. And we have people now that have been there a full year because MPP started near the end of July in Matamoros. That's when they they started the policy and we had our first family cross and come back to Matamoros. We almost didn't believe it when we heard it, almost thought, no, it, it just can't be. But when we got the first families back, everybody was devastated all all the people that were waiting were devastated because of course they had kind of heard about MPP and the possibility and they knew that it might mean that they weren't going to their family in the states that whoever was waiting for them in the u.s you know wasn't going to receive them because they weren't coming and uh, so now we have people that have been there a full year it's heart-wrenching to see people go through so many different things. And COVID is just another thing thrown on top of everything that was already really terrible there. You know, just just makes everything that much worse. But how are we gonna meet the needs of these people? Because at that point, which was the fall, it was growing and growing and growing and growing. So we went from about 150 people prior to MVP to by let's say no October and November there were probably six or seven hundred, and it was just growing by hundreds every month. So now there's there have been up to two thousand in the encampment, and then there's been another two or three thousand they say in the city of Matamoros. There's a lot of people under MPP. I think if we get a new president, I, I'm pretty sure that things will change. I think that MPP will end quickly because it's such a horror. Um, I just cannot imagine that it won't change, you know, be one of the first things that does change. I, I just, and if that happens, then there, the encampment will empty out. They, there won't be an encampment anymore, which is great. I mean, I'm actually looking forward to the day when I don't have to cross into Mexico, you know, multiple times a week with, and I don't have to receive numerous calls because this one needs that, not one needs this. You know, these people have suffered tremendously and deserve a chance to come into the United States. These are not bad people, these are people that have have suffered and have gone through terrible trauma, many of them, and they just deserve a chance to live. Because right now the numbers say less than 1% are actually gonna get asylum as it is, and then if they pass that new round of of rules that they're trying to pass, it's gonna be a, a tinier fraction of 1%. That are actually going to get asylum, which means that the majority of the people in the encampment will never get to come into the United States and they waited for a year for nothing. (laughs) Suffered for nothing gone through traumas in the encampment as well as back in their home countries and now. It's not gonna to come to fruition and they've done it the legal way. That's the thing that gets to me, you know? These people have actually done it the legal way. They've they've followed the process. They've followed the rules. They haven't crossed the river like so many other people have.
1: Do most of the people who come come knowing that the rules have changed and that their chances are extremely slim? Or are they still operating under the belief of the things that things are the way they were before Trump.
0: You know, it's interesting. I see most people and you cannot convince them that they're not going to get asylum. They just kind of hang on to that. You know, God's gonna let me and I have suffered a lot in my own country and and God's gonna be with me and, and lead me to the promised land. And you know, there's even if, you, even if you put it down to statistics, you'll hear still hear people say, well then I will be in that less than 1%. That will be me. And I guess when you've gone through as much as they have, that's all that you have left is that hope.
1: I saw on the website you have a dinner program, a breakfast program, the bus stop program and and a school program. How many how many meals do you serve in a day?
0: Um so the breakfast meal is about uh, six or seven hundred not everybody gets up dinner meal is about 1200 but we also are providing um, food staples because a lot of people prefer to cook for themselves and so they've made clay stoves in in the encampment out of the the dirt that's there it's full of Clay and they mix it with water, and they know how to do it. And they make stoves incredible stoves that you, you can't believe that somebody could just take a shovel and you know, mix it with water and, and make a stove like that. But they do it. We at this time we're purchasing, um, kin, like kindling what you would think of kindling wood. That's what it looks like to me, and uh, we pay uh, someone to do that. And so they bring three loads of that wood a week and distribute it um, to everyone who has a a wood stove um, so they they can cook. Our funding goes in a lot of areas, in a lot of areas that people wouldn't even know about. um, Because you see, okay, they're they're funding uh, food, clothing, shelter, all that kind of thing, but you don't see the other... The other funding that we do, which is transportation costs to asylum seekers that come to the bus station and don't have a ticket. Uh, buying phones. We've bought many phone, many phones. Because when people get out of detention and they have no way of communicating with their families and they're crossing the country, sometimes we just feel like we need to do that. But that's... Uh, an expense that you know most people wouldn't know about. We also help funding the shelters in Matamoros that take in asylum seekers, because there are people that definitely don't need to live in the encampment, that shouldn't live in the encampment, people that have chronic illnesses, people that have newborn babies. There's all kinds of reasons, and so there's two shelters in Matamoros that um, will take asylum seekers in, but limited numbers, so right now they're full, and they're not taking anybody. Again, because of COVID, they're, they're scared. They want to take new people in. When we could go into Matamoros, I was going into Matamoros three or four times a week. And each time I would go, I would be there for hours uh, of the day. Now we're not, we can't really go into Matamoros like we did. We've been delivering supplies and and leaving them, you know, having some of the asylum seekers come down um, out of the encampment and with their wagons and pick up supplies and um, delivering things that way. But we have chosen to stay out of the encampment really since this all broke because we don't want to be the ones that take the virus in. So it's hard. It's hard in the encampment. It's hard to get them to wear masks until there actually was the first um, diagnosed case in the encampment. I think they've been hand washing and, well, social distancing is another thing. When the tents are, you know, wall-to-wall tents, it's kind of hard to say that you're socially distancing. You know, but. They're trying to keep people apart in lines, like lines for dinner, for breakfast, things like that. But we know that people get together, just do. So I actually retired from from the school district um, three years ago, but I retired to help my daughter take care of her young, uh, son who's now, he just finished kindergarten. Um, we ended up homeschooling him, you know, from March on because there was no classes. Um, so we, I didn't cross at all during that period of time. And my daughter is a nurse and she's very opposed to me crossing, um, because she knows how the asylum seekers, you know, live close together and things like that. And so she's, uh i mean i don't like just putting responsibilities on other people and not doing it myself i don't i don't feel right about that but yet at the same time i also have to live in the reality of there is no winning there's no either way if if i say okay well you know i need to do this i'm going to do this then she says okay well then i guess um you won't get to take care of him because you're going across so that's kind of a big threat isn't it? <laughs> you're gonna get your one grandchild that you have in brownville you're gonna get cut off from him um so yeah it's a stressor i mean it's it
1: stinks,
0: thanks um but as far as other things pre-covid It, um, I mean, it definitely affects you. And I'm the volunteer coordinator and up to the point that COVID stopped people from coming, I was receiving uh, probably 10 to 20 calls or emails or texts a day about people wanting to come and volunteer. And so that was, in a way, taking up every bit of my time that I wasn't across, that I wasn't in the encampment or I wasn't at the bus station. That was taking up a lot of time and I didn't really know how to stop it. I couldn't really come up with a way of both addressing people's desire to come and volunteer and my own need to actually have, you know, some time where I could think about something else other than this work. Um, Well, as it happened, COVID kind of cut all that off um, because we can't accept volunteers right now. So, you know, I'm sorry that volunteers can't come, but in a way it was like a relief for me because I didn't didn't have to deal with all those (laughs) calls and, and letters. Looking at the positive here, I would say that because, because we have to rely on the the team Brownsville people that actually live here to do anything, we have become closer and perhaps more organized because we're the people that we have to rely on.
1: We, do you think you were in danger of getting burned out before COVID kind of put the brakes on some stuff?
0: Not. Not burned out from the work. Where I was feeling burned out was from the that job of volunteer coordinator. Because it just I had no way of reining it in. I I didn't maybe I need maybe I needed some professional person that says, hey, I'm I, you know, I have a degree in <laughs> nonprofit management or something, I know how to do this you know I you know let's come up with a better system and so it was always contact Andrea contact Andrea contact Andrea and I certainly didn't mind talking to people or telling them about the work I that we do and all that Uh, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying it was really more of the unending quality of it that there were like six different ways to contact me. And sometimes people would contact me like in three or four different ways. And they would get irate and like, well, I called you and you didn't respond or I sent you a text and you, and I just thought, "I, I did my best is all I can say. Everybody always thinks of retirement as, oh, okay, well now you'll be able to do all, now you'll be able to travel, and now you'll be able to do all the things you wanted to do, and now you'll be able to, you know, now you'll be able to relax, and you'll be able to do nothing, and you <laughs> I mean, you know, any number of responses, but that's not been retirement for me at all. I think I'm actually working harder now than I did when I was working a paid job. It just constantly thinking about what is the next thing? What is the next thing I need to do? What, (laughs) What have I forgotten? In January, so we had been doing it for already for a year and a half. I had been talking to World Central Kitchen about coming because I said, what's happening is that we're getting a lot of volunteers, but Nobody knows how to cook for a thousand people. Nobody has experience doing that. And so when I say, well, what we need volunteers for is to prepare a meal for a thousand people. People would often say we can help in whatever way possible, but I don't know how to do that. And we, because it's an all volunteer organization, you know, we don't, We didn't have like a person that was assigned like that was hired to okay you're gonna you're gonna be the head chef and you're gonna like lead all these volunteers to to make the meals we didn't have that so we had to kind of work around ourselves and trying to find someone in each group that maybe had a little more experience with cooking and just you know, giving people menu ideas and talking about budgets and how much. And the thing is, so we expected them to, if they were gonna come with a group, we expected them to come up with a meal plan. If they were cooking, you know, one night, two nights, okay, you gotta come up with a meal plan. You're, you're preparing a meal for a thousand people. How are you going to do that? And we would give them some resources, other people that had come and cooked, And it worked very well for some, pretty well for some, and not so well for some, but everybody managed to get a meal across anyway. I mean, even if it was, you know, hot dogs and store bought cookies, (laughs) occasionally people did that. You know, they said, okay, well, we'll just make hot dogs and buy carrot sticks or something like that. Okay, all right, let's go with it. Or sandwiches. Sandwiches was another thing that that a couple of of groups made. So finally World Central Kitchen came and they have their whole setup. They have, I mean, they cook for 10,000 and 100,000 people. They know what they're doing so they came in january of 2020 they started and so they set up in a in the parish hall of a church and it was great you had to kind of let them you know tell the volunteers what they needed to do and how to help and it was tricky and we were just really getting used to it when covid stopped everything and they had to leave and so They really only cooked for two months and then they had to leave because we couldn't cross the food anymore. So um, right now we are paying a restaurant. So this restaurant is now cooking both meals with a little assistance on a a few days from a church that, that cooks some meals. But right now we are not cooking and crossing because we can't. And so we are totally relying on this little restaurant and we have brought them a lot of uh, PPE. (laughs) Um, We have supported them in whatever way we can to try to just let them, you know, do the work. And they've, of course, they've had to hire more people. Um, Just, you know, from going from a little mom and pop restaurant, which would maybe have, I don't know, at the most 10 people in it at any one time to now having to cook daily meals for over a thousand people.
1: How do you, how do you think you personally have changed over the last two years? How does this affected you?
0: Well, As a person of faith, and that's challenging in this environment, I think that I've seen how other people's faith have carried them along through this process. And I feel like that's, well, it's made my own faith grow in a lot of ways. Um, I am a a seminarian at this point. I am an Episcopal seminarian um, in the Diocese of West Texas. And so as one of the other things that I do, I have to go to classes and study and do papers and all that kind of stuff and so I am now in my going into my third year so it happened to be and I never ever would have planned it this way it happened to be that I started seminary and I started working with Team Brownsville almost at the same time and I have been told that that maybe i shouldn't be doing this because it's taking too much time away from my studies and the work that i the seminary work that i have to do um and i have just said look this work drives the seminary if i don't have this work or some work some meaningful work some work where i can actually see the whole point of the Bible and the gospel and all those things. If there's not something tangible for me to look at and say, this drives me to that there, this is the meaning of that. Then I might as well not go. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to not do, I'm not going to be part of team Brownsville. I'm I'm not going to do the work because, because I need to, you know, I need to study some or other theologians book. I mean, I get the work done. It may be at midnight, and it may be last minute, but I always get things in. I, I mean, I'm very driven in that way. I do the reading, I watch the lectures, I do the papers, I attend the classes, I do what I need to do, I guess is what how I see it. I think my call is to, to work in this ministry, into, in work in migration ministry, and to work Good families um, in a colonia here. I mean, I I don't see myself being placed in some church that they might want to place me in, because I already know what those churches are. They're churches that are, well, I don't know if you know much about the Episcopal Church, but we have a long history of being a mostly white church, and not just white, but also the people that had money. I don't want that to be my church and so I have presented and am going to continue to present the argument that my call is to migration ministry and I live on the border and even if the encampment closes that's not the end of migration ministry. Migration ministry has been, there have been people migrating for forever. And they will continue to migrate and there will be people in my community that are undocumented, people that are struggling, people that need to hear that you know, there actually are people that care about them and are concerned for their well being and, and you know, that that's really what I want.
1: Well, I did want to ask you, like, what, what do you need? What do you want from people?
0: The, the needs we're facing are we spend close to $100,000 a month on food, clothing, shelter, you know, all the different things, wood, water, paying the people that bring that stuff in. I mean, there's so many different facets, all the bus station stuff. We just have a high outflow of money. And now because of the new people that are coming that don't have a place to go, we need to try to address that. How are we gonna come up with a place? Do we have to buy, build, rent a building, make a shelter of some kind? I mean, how are we going to meet their needs? And so every one of those things costs. Luckily, before COVID started, we had gotten some fairly large-sized donations. So, and that's carried us because we've been able to to do the things like kind of make the transformation from carrying the food across to having to buy all the supplies for the encampment. And, and um, I mean, right now, Team Brownsville is buying everything every bit of everything that is supplied to the encampment all food all clothing all is either donated i mean we take a things, donate directly like through amazon and we use the money to pay for all the things that we're buying um, but um, the mexican government does not buy anything um, they they they're there they the the immigration people are there they're more like a police force in a way you could say for the migrants um but they don't buy anything and we sometimes say what would happen if we weren't here like what would these people be doing what would they really let them starve
1: i've heard like in in like When people really wanna donate after a weather disaster or something like that, that relief organizations would rather have money donations than material donations because it creates a problem of sorting and storing and distributing. Is that true for you? Do you accept material donations?
0: It has been true and uh, not so much now. We cannot accept any more used clothing. Uh, they're not allowing us to cross-use clothing into Mexico, and we can't take it. Um, and we got we got some good donations. Don't get me wrong. We also got a lot of really junky stuff that we had to just literally throw away or you know get in there with gloves because you never knew what you were going to find. Clothing that was just so dirty and stained and ratty that. Are you really gonna give it to someone, the encampment? No, but so in a way it was kind of a relief when, when the Mexican customs people said, well, you can't cross use clothing anymore. You have to bring receipts, you have to have tags on the clothes. So now pretty much what people send is stuff from our Amazon wish list, which is stuff that we use and we need, or they send money. Or uh, we've gotten donations from CWS, uh, which is uh, Christian World Services. It's kind of an ecumenical organization of a lot of different denominations, um, and they provide blankets and they also provide some other things, some other like disaster relief kits and things like that. Um, so we've gotten, and we've gotten other donations from other organizations in the United States. There's one that's called Baby to Baby. That have um, send us um, just a lot of nice things: diapers, wipes, uh, bags with baby clothes, things like that. Uh, one one group raised money for lanterns, for solar lanterns, and came down, and we got to distribute those with them. Um, then they another time they raised money for um, Crocs, Croc type shoes, because people were saying they needed things that that weren't flip flops, things that had uh, you know toes. Um, because of the mud and everything so um people have done that people have um yeah lots of different kinds of, of of donations so um and you know we're we're grateful for that we're grateful for people um making donations continuing to actually think about these people right now in this in this covid time because it's hard to think about anything but yourself <laughs> You know what? What am I doing now, or am I just staying in my house all day long and can't go anywhere? And we have had very strong outreach from Austin to to uh, Team Roundell, and there's a large group of um, Episcopalians. I I guess I attract Episcopalians, <laughs> but no, we've had really a lot of denominations. That, that, that this group just happened to be. Uh, from a number of different Episcopal churches in Austin, and they've come down. They actually started coming every month, and they would come and they would bring donations and they would work at our Escuelita, which is which was on, was on Sunday morning, um, and they would cook and it it, it was great. It was great. Um, we're sad to not have them coming right now. Well, I could talk about uh, the Christ- Christianity and and things that I that were meaningful to me as far as the teachings of Jesus and what what all, what all that is about. But doing this work has made it much more concrete, has made it much more tangible in a way. So when people talk about things about well what you know what are the teachings of Jesus or what did he say about this or what did he say about that for some reason migration ministry always seems to fit right in there's never there's never a moment when when I can't in my mind think about well he said this and it relates to that. And I actually have to kind of hold myself back on more than a few occasions, especially when I'm around church people. Because I know that you can bore people and you can piss people off and you can make people think that you have, you know, dementia because all you can talk about is asylum seekers. <laughs> um, the eye-opening aspects of doing migration ministry have also opened my eyes to the fact that so many people that go to my church have zero interest in this. And actually, they don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, the other thing I discovered is that probably the majority of my church are Trump supporters, which also floors me. I guess I never would have, I mean, this is Texas. You know, this is Bush country. Um, and I'm not a big fan of Bush either, but now he kind of seems like a saint. <laughs> Unfortunately, if there's anything positive that I could say about the Trump presidency, it's that it has brought enlightenment to a lot of people. Their eyes have opened to oh my gosh what is he saying this this can't be uh, no uh, this is all kinds of wrong this is he's driving people that are not supporters of him to action he's driving people to reach out to others in a way that we haven't done in a long time. I mean, really, since the Civil Rights Movement. That's really the only positive thing I can really see about the Trump presidency. I want to believe that five years from now, we will look back and say it was a transformational moment and not just, it was just another moment. Um, and, uh, they keep trying to call me, <laughs> they keep kind of, I've had like three or four calls from the encampment just in our little talk here. I don't know what they want, but anyway. <laughs>
1: That was Andrea Rudnick speaking from Brownsville. She's with Team Brownsville. And thank you so much, Andrea, for your time, your passion, just your willingness to help when it just seemed like nobody else was there to help. It was was amazing. And I'm uplifted by your story, and I want to find more stories like it.
2: What an inspiring story. Thank you so much for sharing and doing all the work that you are
1: doing. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Caterpillar Goo.
2: Stay safe. Bye. Sorry is all that you can say. Years gone by and still, words don't come easily, forgiveness, forgive me, I forgot that song. you don't know that song? Yes. You sure it's record? I don't want to have to do this all over again.